You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even Folks, Al Martin here. Welcome back to Making Data Simple. Hey, uh, I'm here with Jorge Castignon. Did I get that right, Jorge? I got to make sure I get the get the name, the last name, pronunciation because uh, because it, it's got the squiggly over the end. Yes, Al. I think you were super close. Uh, it's Castagnon. very close. Castagnon. <laughs> and 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 what, what is that? Italian? What is that? No, it's uh, I'm from Mexico, uh, but it, it's a Spanish last name. Yeah, no, I figured it was. I was just joking with you, man. So Jorge is a senior data scientist at uh, Watson Studio, which we'll get into in a bit. One of my favorite things. Of course, I got a lot of favorite things, if we're being honest. Uh, but he's a little bit everywhere as, as it relates to data science and uh, machine learning. In fact, I'll give you a little lead in, Jorge. Here it is. This is your life, man. PhD in computational and applied mathematics from Rice University. And if that isn't enough, I looked at your LinkedIn. So I'm looking at your LinkedIn and I, this is what I see. Regular, I, or, <laughs> I don't even know if I could say it, regularization models for image processing applications and used computational algorithms to solve them. I also incorporated prior information from images to mathematical models to enhance the image quality in compressive sensing applications using the machine learning scheme. As part of my MA at Rice, I applied randomized algorithm. Dude, we know you're smart. Why you got to keep going on like that? <laughs> I don't even know what half that stuff means, and I'm in the business. <laughs> no. <laughs> All good, man. All good. So how are you? And why don't I let you introduce yourself? I, I just gave you a, a, a lead in. I hope I did okay. <laughs> no, thank you very much, Al. That was a great intro. Uh, I, I, I have a simpler <laughs> intro of myself. I, I, I'm an applied mathematician and I know enough programming to be a data scientist. Uh, that's that's how I like to describe myself. But thanks for that intro. <laughs> hey, it was your intro because I just stole it from LinkedIn. And this is like you're you're a two timer now because you were on here previously, sometime last year, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we recorded a podcast two years ago uh, about the machine learning hub. It was when we started with the machine learning hub. We're still doing machine learning hub, and it's all about customers bringing us problems, fun problems, fun data sets. And just quickly getting back to them with a great initial solution, a simple one that they can go back home and keep working on it. And we're still doing that many industries. Uh, and we have one here in Silicon Valley. That's the one that I lead. And there's one in Canada, too. So is Machine Learning Hub your essentially your day job? I mean, anything else in terms of... Uh, what you're also contributing or what's it's taking up your time these days? Mostly is the machine learning hub, but uh, as part of the machine learning hub is also, uh, it's just natural for me and, and my colleagues to contribute to the products that are around machine learning, right? So Watson Studio, Watson Machine Learning, Watson OpenScale, uh, they're both, all of them are uh, part of the, our machine learning ecosystem. So whenever we're solving a problem with a customer and we realize that we need a key feature here or there, 
we circle back to the dev team and we try to incorporate as quickly as possible. Watson Studio, Machine Learning, OpenScale. You know, I love those products. I'm a homer. I'm going to be a homer today. Uh, terrific. We'll talk about that. So, uh, but give me a little bit more information. Re re reiterate the purpose of the machine learning hub. You talked about clients coming in, they bring their models or do they leave with models or both? Both. We have both cases actually, uh, but it's, it's more common the case where they do not have a model yet. Uh, you know, there's a customer, they want to apply machine learning. They may want, they may know already what they want to predict and maybe some parts of the data that they want to use to predict that something. And our goal is to clearly understand all the domain expertise that they bring and all the data that they bring. And sometimes we even iterate, like we need a little more data here or there, or what's the meaning of this piece of data. Uh, but at the end of the day, at the end of the session, we provide a model that is a good enough starting point because we really only work with them for a few weeks. So we are not after the best, greatest model ever, but we are after an initial solution that they can take back home and continue to work on it. And most of the times they find a lot about the data. They find about a lot about the power of machine learning in their business and they get excited and they want to apply in even more cases. Maybe they want to come back next year. So in that context, the the clients that uh, come to the machine learning hub, they bring use cases and a business problem. Then you take that business problem and what, a 24-hour period and turn it into a model that they go home with? Is, is that in a nutshell? Uh, not 24 hours. <laughs> Maybe Maybe a couple of weeks uh, to, there's definitely a discussion for a couple of weeks about the, uh, just think about it, Al. You need to understand all the vocabulary of a potential new industry, right? So you get data and you still need to circle back with them. Is this the right data to use? What is the meaning of this piece of information? Just to make sure that we're exploiting and we're really understanding the problem. So it takes longer than 24 hours. Uh, but yeah, we can we can we have worked with customers, and in in a week or two, we already have some value and and, and a model that that it's already giving some high quality predictions. Look, I'm an exec. You know, execs. We live in the reality distortion field, uh, so that's why I'm at 24 hours. We can get it all done, man. So I'm with you. I'm with you. No, I'm just kidding. Look, um, do you ever find it that clients come in and you? It's a collaborative. Uh, a situation where you're trying to find the problem or is it pretty well netted out that problem before you, they actually come into the machine learning hub and you start, you know, solutioning? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, usually they have a, maybe a broad idea of what they want to predict or what problem they want to solve. But in the initial phase, that is the brainstorming phase, uh, usually there's a lot of things that come out that are new to them. And, and it's, it's really interesting because they, we kind of like uh, collaborate in such a way that they are forced to think more deeply in the problem that they want to solve. And obviously that, as a result, you get more information and maybe a reformulation of the problem that they wanted to solve initially. Look, I think, to be honest, it's kind of a ridiculous question. Having said that, I still ask it because... 
uh, I think very often, you know, this is this is more complex than we think. And the problem you come in with is not always the solution you go out with in terms of the problem when you start peeling back that onion. Kind of kind of to your to your point. What is the most common problem or use case that you see? And well, let's just stop there. What's the most common use case you're seeing brought to you with the machine learning hub? I think the most common one is some kind of anomaly detection or outlier detection or, uh, you know, just think about a transaction that in a bank, a transaction that is not, uh, you know, normal, right? Like some, those kind of problems are possibly the ones that come more often in different industries. Bank is the one that I just talked about, but I think we, we, we have uh, actually saw that in, um, in different ones, like semiconductors, like the, which which part of the grid of a semiconductor is going to fail. And most of them do not fail, right? So it's also a very uncommon thing that you're, you, want, you want to predict. Uh, another example of that is a, is a system, maybe on C, uh, we have a, a, a lot of different time series running about the system. One is telling you about the memory that you're using, the the amount of files that are going to be open at 9 a.m. if you're a bank and things like that. So how you can actually use all those time series that maybe you have 200, 300 and predict when something unusual will happen that may up actually stopping, maybe maybe will stop your operations in a bank. So you really want to know when that will happen and try to act before. So those three examples, and I think I can think of, of more, but the, this anomaly detection, I think is the most common one. It's, and it's not an easy one for sure. You know, I thought, um, just because I think it's overused in the industry right now, I thought you'd, you'd say uh, customer churn. I thought you'd say fraud. Uh, but you're more, I mean, not that it's generalized, but you're, 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 you're suggesting anomaly just overall detection is usually with come in, taking the data and finding the anomalies by which to, to drive better, better outcomes. Uh, yes. I'll actually a fraud could be an anomaly. If you, it's just, just uh, something that happens not very often. So hopefully those frauds do not happen very often. If that's the case, then that's that's also part of the family of problems that I that I'm talking about here. So what I, fraud fits within the anomaly? Would would customer churn fit in within anomaly detection? I don't I don't usually make that correlation, but maybe I should. Hopefully, right? If you're in a good business, then <laughs> then yes, uh, you want uh, very little churners. But I don't think it, it it's usually the case, right? Especially with credit cards, for example, that people switch all the time. Yeah, that's not an anomaly. That's my whole point. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, exactly. people are switching, going here, there. We've got so many choices today. You got different deals. There, you know, in a lot of the, the the businesses, I even think I talked about this on a previous podcast. Actually, have a uh, a strategy of they know they're going to lose X number of clients. The whole the whole goal is to uh, still take on. Y number of clients that outpaces the X. I mean, like in the you know cable world, in the uh, uh, the telecom world. I mean, it, it, it's somewhat crazy, but that's that's kind of their business model. I actually talked to a, somebody on the call. I won't I won't I won't mention the company that said, "Hey, look, if I switch my cable right now, I get a better deal." 
why wouldn't you match that? And why you're giving a better deal to your current customers than you are uh, to me. And he said, yeah, that's just our model. And this guy was going to let me leave. I actually ended up escalating it to disconnect and disconnect then, you know, said, Hey, we'll match it. We'll match our current offer or or, or, we'll match the, the offer that new clients are getting uh, with what you have today being a, 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 a loyal client. But I think that's crazy. But anyway, that's the world we see. You, You would think that that kind of customer churn metrics would be paramount in that form of industry. Yeah. In that kind of like, industry i think people use like maybe they estimate the number of users and then they estimate the number of users that they are leaving but they also estimate the number of users that are coming back right and as long as that equation is steady they are happy with that well and more than that they must be betting on the loyal customers continuing to play pay uh you know, the, the, the higher price, even though newer customers coming in at a lower price, I mean, they must count on loyal customers just to keep paying that and not wake up, I guess. I, I don't know. Anyway, that, that's, that's for another day. You can tell it's close to my heart, though, right now. Let's talk about uh, Watson Studio, machine learning, and OpenScale, the, the three products that you're working with, um, you know, on a regular basis. Let me, let me back up. I'll kind of talk to our strategy, but I'm going to give you the test, not me. Uh, cause it's my podcast, that's how it works. So, but just for the listeners again, and you've heard me say this, you know, our strategy, which, um, you know, I, I'm partial to it, but it's about collecting data, organizing data. And when I say collect, it also means connect, which we could get into at some other po- podcast, but collect or connect, organizing, analyzing, and infusing AI everywhere. So Jorge, you come in on the, the, the top of the rung, the top of the ladder, which is infusing AI everywhere. And then within that context, we've got several products that do that. You can, you can take a, an application, which is like IBM Watson Assistant for support or discovery. Um, you can have like service APIs, which is Watson language, speech, vision. You can then do design and build. And this is where you come in, the Watson Studio. Uh, runtime, which is Watson Machine Learning. And then you can essentially have AI governance, what we call open scale, that detects uh, bias and drives explainability. And then within all that, that fits nicely into what we call IBM Cloud Private for Data, which is a microservices architecture. Look, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm a homer at IBM here, and, and those are products that I'm extremely proud of and I'm responsible for, at least uh, most of them or some of them. The but. Can you talk to, from your standpoint, that architecture, why it works well, uh, how you use Watson Studio and machine learning, and then OpenScale in many of the use cases that you have today? How, how does that engagement process go, and how are you using those products? Sure, Al. So uh, there's there's many parts here that I would like to, to talk about. The, the first one uh, is the Watson Studio piece because basically that's the piece that we spend more a lot of the time with the customers because it's this initial phase, right? So uh, of the of the machine learning uh, ecosystem, right? So you first train the model, assuming that you already did your collection and your organization. So if we assume that we're there, then uh, Watson Studio is the piece of the product that allows us 
to really collaborate with the customer because in one place we can share the data, we can connect to databases, we can share analytical assets once we have something to show to them. We don't need to go out of, of, of Watson Studio to actually share the results. We can all connect, we can all share a product either in the in the public or private cloud. And that's a really, really easy way for uh, collaboration, right? So I think the one of the most important parts of Watson Studio is the collaborative aspect of it. At least in, in, in my engagements with customers, that part is really, really important. And uh, the parts that I don't get to touch that much with the customer, because basically we... Uh, we 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 give some homework to them because we are actually just the initial phase, right? And sometimes services at IBM helps here or other teams. Uh, but after you're happy with a model and with the quality of your predictions, and that's something that we assess I- initially, uh, there is a phase where you want to put this model in production, the, 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 the deployment aspect of the model. So if it's just sitting in Watson Studio, it's just for analysis and, and, and just to train and talk about it, have fun, but it's still not being used in your system, right? So you need to put that put that model in production and that's where the, machine, the Watson machine learning piece is very important because it's going to help you to very easily uh, add API calls to your model that you can easily call from anywhere, from, from your application, from your bank system, from your iPhone, from wherever you want to call this model, the, the, wherever you want to host these predictions. And even after, uh, it, then at a later phase, maybe you're already happy with your predictions, but you're still... Uh, you still want to know more, right? Like when when new data comes, how is this model changing, right? So are my, are my predictions as good as last month or not? There's a need f- to monitor these models in production just to have a healthy uh, prediction and a healthy system, right? So that's where uh, machine open scale is one of the big features there. Uh, open scale will help you monitor, will help you retrain, will help you explain when you need to explain uh, a, a prediction, right? So we worked with a credit union uh, a, a while back and they they needed not only the prediction, hey, you should give a loan to this person or not. They actually need all around that answer, meaning why am I getting this, uh, well, Usually it's the other way around. Why I'm not getting this loan? I, I, that's uh, that's part of, of, of the uh, interpretation of the model uh, that open skills is also allowing us to interpret and to, as I said before, monitor the health of the predictions. So I guess that's the, the three parts. Do you, do you spend your time in all three parts or you spend most of your time in Watson Studio? Most of the time in Watson Studio. Because of the nature of these quick uh, uh, initial engagements with with data and customers, right? And so, if I can restate it, um, essentially, you got three parts. You've got Watson Studio, that's the name of our product, but we're building models at that point. So you're doing data exploration, you're doing prep, and you're doing and then then pushing the models out. So when you want to easily deploy, uh, then you would look to 
our machine learning tool, which does deployment, does retraining, and does a bit of model management. And then if you want to kick it into high gear, you can bring in Watson OpenScale, which, you know, look, we've got a saying that I think rings true, and, and it, it's a good talking point that, uh, it, you know, AI is not magic. Uh, and a lot of the problems here, if, if you don't have some a product like OpenScale, you can't open it up and you can't see what's under the hood. So it seems like it's magic. And you want to make sure that, you know, there's no bias. You want to make sure that it's doing what you think it's doing. So what OpenScale is automatically, um, in, uh, it, it enables fairness through explainability. It does bias detection, et cetera. Uh, and re- re- relative to the bias detection, I mean, it's essentially 100% accurate because what it does is it'll flip an attribute uh, and then do re- rerun the, MEMA, the the model with an at- attribute flip to see if it reproduces the same results. And if, if it doesn't, then, you know, something's off because just like, for example, the classification of male or female, if you just switch switch the classification and really nothing more and you get a different result, then there's some kind of bias that, that you need to to address. So anyway, Watson OpenScale does that management. And then you either can head it back, you know, head back to machine learning to do some retraining, or you can rebuild some of the models, but it takes away a lot of the overhead. But it sounds like from your standpoint, you are spending most of your time on the build phase, which makes absolute sense. And I presume that you are working in notebooks. Are you working on, um, or what what are you coding in primarily? Jupyter notebooks with Python or R are the yeah the the initial phase is usually there because the data shape is not in the right uh, shape to to actually fit to other uh, tools. But uh, but I've I've recently been using a lot the data refinery tool that helps you both shape and visualize data. And I love it. It's quick. So what you would spend uh, maybe uh, an hour in your Python code and in Jupyter just to get a few visualizations, some distributions of the data. In Data Refinery, you really can get there in five, ten minutes. It's it's really really simple. Uh, I'm 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 adopting it, adopting it to 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 just be quicker, and of course. The flexibility of, of writing code is always uh, it's always something that you want to have just in case you don't find the right operation to do uh, in the, in the data shaping phase of the problem. Right, raw data is not the data that you will use to train the model. There's a bunch of things that you need to do: clean, uh, deal with missing values, do feature engineering, come come up with other. Uh, parts of the data that will potentially help your predictions. All those things, uh, you at some point need the Python R flexibility. Uh, But you can get a lot done in Data Refinery or in SPSS Modeler. Uh, So just having those three things together makes me really, really happy because I'm, I'm getting to a point too that I can actually take advantage of the three of them together. And that's actually something that I would not do before because I would just do Python because I know how to, you know, code with Python. But just the fact that you can take shortcuts with the refinery or with the SPSS modeler 
is just like uh, most, much more efficient. So I don't want to confuse folks here, but I do want to dig down on your comments on refinery and SPSS modeler. One of the things inevitably that comes up when I'm having a conversation with clients is that, man, my data is a mess. And the worry is, I mean, you know, as we've quoted many times, 80% of the time, if not more, is spent on cleansing the data. Uh, and I think then it becomes a return on investment concern because I'm, I have all these data scientists that are spending more time on cleansing data than anything else. So what do you get? Um, I mean, so what, what's the value of, of data refinery? I don't want this to be an infomercial. It's turning on to be another infomercial, but that's all right. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's good in any term tools that you use, whether you use refinery or otherwise. But what does refinery and SPSS modeler offer you? It offers me a quicker way to get to the same result. That's the short answer. The longer answer is, I guess, yeah, the data is not in the right shape, right? So you actually need some Python commands, you know, load the data in Python, open a Jupyter notebook, spend time debugging the code until you get to exactly the shape that you need. That might take maybe an hour if it's not very messy. Then if I go back and instead of this Jupyter notebook path, I use a data refinery path. I can uh, do the same without coding. So uh, if I know how to use the tool, I can just click uh, here and there to reshape the data and to get to the visualization that I wanted to get. And it's going to take five or 10 minutes. So I would say it's maybe six to 10 times faster in a recent example that I, that I just did. So, 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 so the, going back to your point, the, fair, the, the, the very same task being done in two different ways, the coding approach with Python and the non-coding approach with uh, Refinery, it can be just uh, much faster, right? So you want to get to the results faster. Yeah, no, I got you. What about, what about uh, you mentioned SPSS Modeler. Can you add some specifics there? Sure thing. Uh, SPSS Modeler. So, for example, if I'm training a model with Python, I can pretty much bring a bunch of different algorithms and just compare all of them in a notebook. Maybe I'm con I, I can compare 10 with a lot of code and compare some quality metric of choice and then just choose the best one. And in SPS, SPSS Modeler, I could do the same, but with less effort again. So it's the same idea, but let me let me elaborate. So uh, in SPSS Modeler, you can add a node into the product and actually read the data with that node and you don't need any coding. And then you, you add another node just to train not one, but many models. There's some auto ML going on that automatically trains many models for you and chooses the one that is the best for the quality metric that you choose as a user. So again, uh, you don't need to code. Uh, so you get things done faster. But now we're talking about the training aspect of the model and comparing different algorithms. So it sounds like your day is made up of data refinery, Watson Studio, and uh, SPSS Modeler. Uh, if you have those three, you've got three uh, tools that um, that help you. It helps the pace and, and gets those models out quickly. Accurate? Yes? No? 
Did I miss anything? No, no, no. You're, you, that's exactly right. So you could you could do only Jupyter notebooks, but it's just going to take you uh, more time, and maybe you don't you don't have the skills in your data science team to 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 use Python. Uh, so if, if you have the others, then then you can get around that. So you probably answered my next question because I think it's an important question for the, the listeners here because uh, I think there's a thought. Well, I mean, it's an accurate thought in some sense uh, that there's a lot of open source that you can take advantage of out there. There's a lot of authoring tools. There's, there's runtime options. There's, you know, modern infrastructure. Type of, let me give you an example. Like you already mentioned you for an authoring tools, you got Juniper, you got RStudio, you got SPSS Modern, Data Refinery, uh, Watson Explorer. I don't know. That's all I can remember right now. This is just in our, our, our suite, if you will. Then you've got... Uh, machine learning runtimes that you can use like Spark and otherwise you've got deep learning runtimes, cafe, whatever. Then you've got, um, you know, infrastructures, whether it's Hadoop, whether it's, uh, Kubernetes, Docker. Um, I've got, I, I, you know, where I'm going with this is, is that Watson studio wraps this up, but, um, so that it's simple. And that, that's what we're trying to get at is simple. And then Watson Machine Learning, I could go down the same thing and, and, and give you all the, the products that, that are kind of wrapped up here. But what other advantages are there versus just grabbing each one of you know, some tools independently that are open source out there on the market? Um, what, do you, what, what, what advantages to, does Watson Studio, Watson ML offer you? I'm thinking about two main advantages here. The first one, I think it's uh, just the one tool that is actually managing all the way that the open source projects talks to each other. So if you don't have it, then you need to go uh, to your bare metal machine, install each of these programs, make sure that they are talking to each other. And that's a skill that, is actually not easy at all. You can spend a lot of time just trying to get your machine set up. There's definitely good tools to do it, but if someone can manage all that pain for you, then uh, it's definitely something that, uh, you know, you would just go straight to the analysis or straight to the data science, straight to the data shaping, right? So that's one of the main benefits that I see. And another one is that it, it's still very flexible because people might say, hey, I prefer to build my own machine because it gives me the flexibility. And with Watson Studio, you don't lose the flexibility because you have your Jupyter notebook with Python. You have access to, to, to your machine. Also, you can bring uh, maybe the open source project that just came last week that is obviously still not in our build but you can still do it on your own, right? So it gives you the flexibility of bringing the new, the most recent TensorFlow if you really want to use that one instead of going and installing everything. You just need to go and install that piece, right? So, but you can still do it. So I think those two things are, uh, probably there's a lot more, but those are the two things that I'm thinking about right now. No, that's, that's fair. I mean, um, the way I look at it is, one is, is we're also... Uh, hybrid cloud and multi-cloud so that you can mix and match your deployment, whether it's desktop on-premise or or cloud. And and I think um, what I enjoy about 
these products is we've taken the most popular open source tools and frameworks, and then we built it on a longstanding technology that's over 50 years old now, actually. I mean, they've been doing it for a while in SPSS and data science. Um, then you then you then you put on the visual productivity tools and in, in, in magic. It, it's 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 my job or my every objective to reduce that 80 percent that all these data scientists are spending all that their time on it and data prep. And we could go on and on. The other thing is, you know, I don't think what people realize, whether they go with IBM or not, is that um, when you look at those open source, like we had to delay a couple of weeks and I was I, I was upset with the team. We had a Watson Studio delay with our one of our last releases for two weeks, but it was because some of our scans showed at the very last minute, um, you know, 20 vulnerabilities in security on the open source tools, 20. And so we didn't have enough time towards the end. I still think we could have done a little bit better planning there, but we didn't have enough time. And uh, so we had to delay. I mean, I can't imagine being able to download those those open source tools without doing some of the security scanning in this day and age that 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 we have to do. All right, I got you. Hey, look, a um, couple questions for you. Uh, how'd you get started in this? I mean, what made you go into and then go into data science and essentially become a PhD in computational applied mathematics? You must be good at math, huh? You must just it must come easy to you. Uh, definitely, that was one one thing. So uh, I, I like it, and and I was good since early age. And uh, the way I guess I become a data scientist was in the middle of the PhD. I realized that I didn't want to do academia at all, uh, <laughs> because uh, yeah, because it's it's just too too too. Uh, I don't know. I I find it more fun to be in industry because the problems are more practical usually. Even though in academia you get there sometimes, but the practical aspect of problem solving that was something of interest. Um, of course, using the math and using the the, the programming uh, tools and all those things together actually uh, were were the ones that uh, helped me become a data scientist. And and of course, uh, uh, you know, thinking about what kind of uh, what 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 kind of, of of thing I can do to get a job, right? So it was exactly that point where data science was becoming super popular, and I was like, okay, I have the math, I have the programming, I think we should probably head there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Who speaking of, who do you look up to in the data science world? Who gets it? Is there one or two people that you that are in the industry that you say, look, uh, this is a a whether they have a PhD or not, this is a data scientist, quote unquote, that I follow, I look to, that, um, you know, really just gets it. A role model data scientist for me is Andrew Ang. I'm a fan of Andrew Ang. His courses are great because even though he do not go deeply into the math, he is really, really intuitive. So I have learned too much on uh, just looking at his videos in Coursera and, and in, in Stanford. Uh, another big role model that I have is uh, Patil, DJ Patil, and what he what he did in the government and the Open Data Project. Uh, and, and just hearing him is just very inspiring because he's all about doing good with data right so so the, the, so yeah so Andrew Ang for the uh, i guess 
super knowledge <laughs> and DJ Patil in terms of his good intentions and social good. Uh, good answer, man. And, and you didn't even prepare for that answer. So uh, if, if, and I may have asked you these the last time we talked, but I'm going to ask you it again is speak. Uh, you talked about Coursera. If, if somebody's out there and wants to learn and is there a introductory path or suggestion you could provide? And then also a, medium to expert suggestion in terms of learning, training that you should go find or go take? Uh, yeah, I think Coursera is a great place to start. There's a, there's a machine learning course from Stanford, from Andrang. That is a must. Even though it's not in Python, I would suggest uh, to someone to reveal this, the course just in Python because the examples are in MATLAB and it's not the common language for the data scientists today. But still, the course is amazing. I would, I would definitely start there. And I wouldn't stop in the course because there's a bunch of holes in the course, uh, especially in the math, that if you don't go and do on your own, then you're going to miss that part, right? You're, you're not going to actually really fully understand at least the simple models, right? So I think if you go to Coursera, to Andrang's Stanford course, and you cover those holes with your own math and your own examples, and maybe you rewrite some examples in Python, I think that would be a great way to start. Like it. Anything for, for the, the expert? I mean, you say, look, keep learning here. I mean, same spot, same Coursera again, or what? For the expert, I think uh, there's definitely things on Coursera, but I think the expert is more about just, trying to find what is new out there using GitHub repos, uh, using open source projects. Uh, it's a little more unstructured if you're actually at that level already. I think you definitely learn a lot from your colleagues. If you write, uh, if you do online, online writing, if you share your knowledge there, people will give you feedback. And that's one of the most interesting ways to actually expand your knowledge and, and keep learning and realize maybe things that you think that you understand correctly, but you are actually not understanding them fully. So that's a way to actually, you know, put your words out and see what people say. So Jorge, that's a good liaison. I know you've got a lot of blogs that you put out there. We will make sure that they're in the, in the show notes. Uh, I also um, know that uh, right now, like you're working on a model for a Fortune 100 retailer, which I appreciate, uh, and that should be complete soon. So um, you're doing great work. Uh, you do get out of the office sometimes to breathe, don't you? you, you do you have fun? What do you do for fun? Then? Definitely. I, I have uh... So I, I have a 10-month-old, and that's where all my fun goes outside of the office. And So you call no sleep fun? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's sleeping better now. <laughs> well, enjoy those times because, as everyone says, and you don't realize it until it's too late, uh, they go by quickly. Uh, I've got one that's graduating from high school right now t tomorrow. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I just can't believe how fast that went. It's shocking. Anyway, um, I'll end there. Thank you for your time today. A lot of good information. Uh, you're certainly an expert in the area, so I can, I can see a third, a, a, a third trip to making data simple for you if, if you would uh, 
if you will do it someday because uh, you've got a lot to offer. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Al. I'll be happy to come back anytime. And, and it's a pleasure to have you as a leader. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for that. But I, I got to say that I've got probably 50 questions that are left. So we will we will have you back. So thank you again. And for all the listeners out there, appreciate it. Give us feedback. You know, we'll uh, we'll uh, uh, we'll shape the the future content to, to what you provide. So thanks again. And until next time, see you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out. <laughs>